Good morning, fam. Good to see you all. Merry Christmas. Happy Advent season. Like Chris said, we're going to be in Isaiah 53 this morning. Um, so if you want to turn there or swipe there. Let's pray first and then we'll get started. Father, thank you that we get to celebrate you, you at work in and through our lives for the sake of your glory and your kingdom, Father. Um, Like Chris prayed, Spirit, guard my mouth. May your word go forth this morning. May your truth be spoken. Into your name we pray, amen. So we're gonna be in Isaiah 53, and Isaiah 53 is part of, uh, it's called the Suffering Servant Passage. Right, but it's actually a part of four different songs or four different poems. It's called some of them are called they're called the servant songs or the servant poems, but this one's specifically called the suffering servant song. And so Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and then this passage in 53 are all part of these suffering uh, suffering servant songs or poems. And so um, they are all about a servant of Yahweh. A God who calls the servant to lead the nations, uh, but the servant is horribly abused among them, suffers greatly, but in the end is rewarded. Now, before we kind of dive into the text, uh, this specific song, this specific poem, there's a little bit debate about who this is about. Uh, we read this, and through our lens where we're at in, in history, it might be plain to us who this song, who this poem is about. But some rabbis believe that this suffering servant song is about the nation of Israel. Uh, some believe it's, it's about Isaiah himself, that Isaiah wrote it about himself. Some believe it's Jeremiah, but there are different interpretations of who this is about. Um, and in fact, in, as, so this kind of revolves around the question of do you believe in predictive prophecy? Do you believe that God, cr- this creator God, would speak to humans and tell them what's going to happen in the future? Right? He used the prophets. Did he use the prophets to say, hey, this is what's coming. This is what's going to happen. And if you believe that, if you believe in predictive prophecy, then this suffering servant passage it's, it's pretty evident of who this is about, who it's pointing to. But if we don't, then it's up for ter- interpretation of whoever you want it to be. And in fact, though, in, in the Old Testament, there are about 300, give or take, about 300 prophecies that point to a, a savior, a messiah, a coming one who will save, be the sacrifice for the, the nations. And, and Peter Stoner, he's, he's a chairman of Department of Math and Astronomy at Pasadena College. He's passionate about biblical prophecy and so he took 600 students from InterVarsity at Pasadena College and he looked into eight specific prophecies, just eight out of possible 300. And he came up with some conservative probabilities about one of them being fulfilled or, or these eight being fulfilled in, in one person. 
right? What is the probability of these eight prophecies being fulfilled exactly how they're written, being fulfilled in, in one man? And so this math professor, he does, he works his math mojo magic, and he comes up with some pr- pretty conservative numbers. And so he says, the probability of this happening is one in 10 to the 17th power, which for non-math people, which I'm a math teacher, so I understood what that, that's big, right? I understand what that means. It's one in 100 quadrillion. And so he says in an interview, he, he, says, he says this, let's try to visualize this chance. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all the tickets in a hat and stir them around, and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10, right? That's probability, basic probability. He's like, now, suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power or 100 quadrillion silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They'll cover the whole state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole state of Texas around. Blindfold a man, tell him to take one silver dollar and that would be, the chance of him getting that one silver dollar would be the chances of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophetical prophecies. That helped me visualize just the magnitude Right? When Jesus comes and he says, I have come to fulfill all of the prophets, all of these prophecies that have been written about me in the Old Testament, suddenly the magnitude of that came to life for me. He's not just saying like, yeah, I, I, I came to, that's me, I came to do that. But out of eight, 100, it's 100 quadrillion chance that one man would fulfill eight of those prophecies. So over 300. So as we read Isaiah 53 this morning, have that magnitude in the back of your head. And we'll see, I'll, I'll let you guys kind of see what you believe, who you believe this suffering servant passage is about. So let's get started. We're actually gonna start, in fi- this, this suffering servant passage actually starts in 52. 52.13, it says, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Now I wanna pause here for a minute because when I was reading through this, sprinkle many nations, I was like, what, what, does, what does that even mean? What does it mean to sprinkle many nations? And so I did a little bit of research and the, the, word, the Hebrew word for sprinkle here the root word is nazah, which is to sprinkle. But the specific one in Isaiah 52 here, is the translation in the form used is only used one other time in the Old Testament. 
And it's used in Leviticus 16 when God is telling Moses to tell Aaron how he's supposed to sacrifice a bull and a goat for the sins of him, his family, and the nation of Israel. So it's linked to the atonement of sins. He's saying, Isaiah here is saying, this this suffering servant is gonna sprinkle his blood for the atonement of all nations. And somehow, this servant is gonna suffer for the sake of the world. He goes on in 53, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Here, Isaiah is continuing this imagery that he uses in in, uh, chapter 11. In chapter 11, verse one, he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which Jesse was who? Little pop quiz. David's dad. Jesse was the father of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And again, in, and again later in chapter 11, verse 10, he says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So out of Israel, out of this lineage of Jesse and King David, shall come one who will be assigned to the nations, and he will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Fifty-three, the rest of two, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. We were reading our Advent last night, and one of the stories, we were like four days behind, so we had to read like four times, uh, four days worth of Advent stuff, so... Um, you know, like Advent, we love Advent and we try and do it in our, in our house and then life gets busy and then our kids are like, uh, we have not done it in four days. So we're like, you're right. We, Joe and I were super tired. It was late, but we're like, we can't, we can't go five days. That's like, it's too long. So we did it four days. But anyways, one of the stories we were reading in Advent was about, was about King David and how God does not look at the outward appearance, but looks at the heart. And the example it gave was like a present, right? A present looks, can look shiny, the wrapping paper can look shiny and great, or it can be you know, in a big box, and you think, man, this is gonna be a, a great present. We just had a white elephant gift exchange for our party, and we let our boys pick the present for us, and they always wanna pick the most beautiful or the biggest one, right? Because they're like, big means better, right? And we're like, yeah, be careful. You know, be careful, big doesn't always mean better. Because one time we got a microwave. And so, um, but actually it ended up working. We used to use that microwave. Um, but God sees the gift inside. Right here. Here he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in appearance would tell us that he was gonna be the savior. He was gonna be the king of the world, the sacrifice, the atonement for all nations. Nothing about his appearance drew us to him or drew people to him. 
And in fact, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low, low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace the punishment that brings us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. Now I wanna pause here because verses seven and eight we see show up again in the New Testament. We, sh we see in Acts that Philip is told to go down this desert road. He's told to get up and go to, from Jerusalem to Gaza. And on that road, he hears an Ethiopian eunuch reading this passage. And so... I want you guys to, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts, Acts 8. If not, swipe there or you can just read it or follow along. But in Acts 8, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up. Go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah, what we had just written, or what we had just read. And he says, do you, Philip says to the Ethiopian eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, how could I, unless someone tells me? How, how do I know what this is about? And he said, well, or he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture which he was reading was what we just read. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his, his generation for his life is removed from earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does this prophet say this? Is it of himself or of someone else? Right? This question that for some people, some people now are still asking, who is this passage about? Did Isaiah write this about himself? Is it about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, 
If you believe with all your heart, you may. And the Ethiopian eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. But went away on but he went away, he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So Philip knew who Isaiah was talking about. He knew exactly who Isaiah was talking about. The the Ethiopian eunuch is like, who is this? Who's he talking about? And Philip's like, Isaiah here is talking about Jesus Christ, the son of God. He fulfills this prophecy. He fulfills everything that you're going to read in Isaiah 53 about this suffering servant being pierced for our transgressions. His wounds healing. This is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He came to atone the sins of many nations. Also in the Acts passage, I just think it's cool that the, when they came out of the water, Philip was gone. And the Ethiopian eunuch was like, where did he go? The spirit of the Lord literally took Philip and transported him 35 miles away north to a different city. I, I forgot that detail. And I read that and I was like, that's awesome. You know, like, can you imagine getting baptized? You know, like we do baptisms one morning in the trough. You know, and like Chris does a baptism and then like brings whoever out of the water and he's gone. You know, like he's in. That's a, that's a little further than 35 miles away. I was going to say like Chandler or Mesa or somebody, but we could go Hawaii. <laughs> uh, just a fun detail. I, I, I read that and I was like, man, I, I love scripture. Just full of. Awesome, awesome, just little details. But let's keep going. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. What does this remind you of? He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Where was Jesus buried? In a rich man's tomb. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. He will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for their transgressors. 
So for us, as we read this suffering serpent passage, as we read this poem, this song of Isaiah, for us it might be clear who he's talking about. The one man that came to earth that could fulfill this whole, just these, what, just these 15 verses. For us, it might be clear that it it can't be Israel. Israel was not a nation that lived in a way that would, that their sacrifice or their destruction would atone for the sins of many. In fact, Israel kept having to get punished. God kept having to put them in exile because they had forgotten what their mission was in this world, to reflect the very, this very creator God, this Yahweh, to the nations. That they were to be a light, they were to be a reflection of who the real and living God was and they kept forgetting and they kept turning inward. And so God keeps saying over and over again to Israel, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten me. So to help you remember, I'm gonna discipline you so that you once again will reflect who I am. And they kept failing. So God had to do something. He had to do something about this sin problem in this world. He had to do something. He had to send somebody to perfectly reflect, perfectly point to who God was. So he sends who? Jesus. That was a softball. I just like. (laughs) He sends Jesus. The suffering servant. He's born into this world to a virgin. And he lives a life that is completely counterculture of what Israel thought their Messiah, the Savior King, was going to be like. Because when Jesus was born, Israel's in captivity, right? They're in exile. They're, they are being ruled by the Roman Empire. So for them, their Savior, their Messiah, this King that's going to come, for them, it means they're going to this savior king is gonna save them from the Roman Empire. See, sin, so the atonement for their sin didn't necessarily mean sin in their hearts. They saw sin as idol worship. And the epitome of idol worship was this Roman Empire who worshiped all kinds of empires and oppressed them. And so this savior king was gonna be a king who would come and destroy the kingdom of Rome by military might and power. And yet, this savior king, this suffering servant comes and suffers at the hand of this Roman Empire. And so you can see the dilemma for for these Israelites. Wait, 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 wait a second. We read in Isaiah and we see this, this savior king is gonna come to atone, to sprinkle many nations, to atone for the sins of many nations. And Rome is the epitome of sin. So, destroy Rome and you take care of the sin problem. And yet Jesus is like, look, sin goes deeper 
than an empire, than the kingdoms of this world. So God sends his son not to destroy the kingdom of Rome, but to destroy the kingdom of sin on this earth. So Jesus enters, God sends his son in the midst of history. You see, Israel thought too that when the Savior King came and Rome would be destroyed, that would be the end of history. He'd be done. He'd reestablish his kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and history would be done. That'd be it. And yet Jesus dies, is resurrected, and life still goes on. So nothing was adding up for Israel. And so you can see how they, are, they had a problem. They're like, this guy Jesus says, I have come, I'm fulfilling all that was written about me. I'm fulfilling all 300 plus prophecies that the Old Testament kept pointing to. They pointed to me, Jesus says. All throughout history, all of those things kept pointing to me. I'm him. I'm bringing the kingdom of God here. So you can see how, like for us looking back, we're like, man, how do people miss it? But do you understand the magnitude and the gravity of when Jesus says, I'm fulfilling all that, I'm bringing the kingdom of God. In one man, people could have been like, you're, in fact, people did, like, you're crazy. There's no way, this, this dude's crazy. He's a carpenter's son. Isn't, that jo- isn't this Joseph's son? How is he getting up in the synagogue, reading Isaiah and said, sits it down and says, that's me. It's crazy, ludicrous. This can't be, this, this can't be our savior. This can't be our Messiah. And yet, he dies and is resurrected. And the story continues today. You see, we live in this time of the already and not yet. You might have heard it use that language here a couple times. Where the kingdom of God has already come. And yet we still see the effects of sin. We still see the power of sin in our structures, in our systems, in our education system, in our political system, in our justice system. All of our systems and structures of this world are still affected and plagued by sin. So the kingdom of God has already come in the person of Jesus Christ and yet he now calls us as church, as family, as a new Israel, to reflect perfectly. Well, we can't do it perfectly. But to reflect in our lives, live our lives in a way that reflect this creator God. Who God is. And so in Advent, we we still celebrate. We look back and we celebrate and we rejoice. Just as the Ethiopian eunuch did when he learned who Isaiah was talking about, he went away rejoicing. 
I was reading this and I didn't understand who it was. And Philip explained to me that it's Jesus Christ. He's baptized and he goes away rejoicing. So us, church, as we continue, as we look back and understand that Isaiah is talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Son of God, fully God, fully human, we can go away from here rejoicing. Being baptized by the Holy Spirit, we can go away from here rejoicing. While still living in the already and not yet, seeing the effects of sin in our systems and structure, in our places of work, in our families, in our own hearts, the truth of the gospel is God has sent his son to sprinkle many nations with his atoning blood so that we can go away rejoicing. And we look forward. We look past and rejoice at what he has done. And we look forward in anticipation for what is to come. Because Jesus says, I have to go. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we look forward to one day him fully restoring all of creation to how it was. And in that day, fully rejoice with him in the new creation, new heavens, new earth. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you because what you have done, sending your son Jesus to this earth to perfectly reflect who you are and what you have done. Father, thank you that we can rejoice. Thank you that we, that our sins have been atoned for the sins of the world have been atoned for. God, that we have been set free from the power of sin. And yet you have called us to be a light in this dark world. Father, we rejoice because of what you have done. We rejoice because of what, of what you will do. And we rejoice because of what you are currently doing in this world, Father. You have not left, you have not left us to our own devices. You live within us and among us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Now we're gonna take some time to remember Remember and rejoice with one another that we get to take bread, drink some juice to look back on what God has already done. And we get to rejoice in anticipation of what he's gonna do. So go with one another. Go with your MC. Go in a group. Remind each other of the truth and rejoice with one another. This is also a good time to give you your tithes and offerings and there's gluten-free on that side if you want. But go as you're ready.